Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. Hey guys, welcome to the Asking Why podcast. This is your host, Clint Davis, and we are on episode 59. So we're coming up on 60, which is pretty crazy. Um, we've been doing this for a little over a year. And man, I'm super happy to have the followers we have, the listeners we have. So thank you all so much for you know following us and, and listening to our content and sharing it. Um, right now we have almost about 60,000 downloads, so that's been pretty awesome. So coming up on 60 with 60,000 downloads is, is awesome. Um, we got some sponsors that are going to be sponsoring the podcast, probably starting next episode. So I'll name them. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in that, if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, if you have a small business or something and you want to get your name out there to our listeners and our viewers, um, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, on all the things, um, let us know Spotify, um, iTunes, you know, the podcast is pretty much everywhere that you can listen to stuff. So, um, yeah, so let's get to it. So today, um, it's just me, and I'm going to talk a little bit about um, authenticity in relationships. I'm going to give kind of a general overview, and hopefully we'll land on what that means and, and how to get to it. But um, I think so many of us struggle with you know presenting ourselves fully and, and fully ourselves to each other. And in counseling, I work with um, people all the time um, in my own life, in my own counseling, and in the lives of others um, to help them figure out how to be vulnerable and how to be open in relationships. Um so the question that I get sent and asked all the time is like, why is this so hard for us? Like, why is it so difficult surface level? Like, oh, well, of course we're scared or we're nervous or whatever, but I want to dive into that a little bit today um, because ultimately, right, it's coming from our deep wounds that we have in childhood, from our trauma, from our attachment failures in our own lives. Um, and so we've talked about it on the podcast. So just quick definition, like what is trauma? And I would say trauma is anything that's not nurturing. And, um, and what I mean by this is it's not that everything that happens in your life is going to send you into complete despair and into complete, uh, dysfunction or give you PTSD, but anything that's not the garden has consequences. And what I mean by that is when the fall happened, brokenness entered into the world and there was struggle and there was sin and there was um, sickness and there was death and there was weather and, and all of that chaos happened and that, none of that was God's plan. You know, God's plan was shalom, was harmony and peace and connection with us. Um, he wanted to be with us. He wanted to be intimate with us. He wanted us to be vulnerable with him. I mean, for goodness sakes, Adam and Eve had no clothes on, right? So they were without shame. And I think that deep shame is where we know we're loved, we know we're valued, we know we're secure, we know we're worthy because we're in the presence of God. We're with him, walking with him, seeing him. And so when we experience life now on the, in the earth, on the earth and in the world, we're in this kind of not yet where 
we experience life um, and, and things from other people that are not perfect, that are not shalom, and, and it hurts. And, um, you know, we've done podcasts on this before. We talk about that, that that causes this deep pain. So when when the fall ha- happened and these consequences happened, that, that's trauma. That's traumatic. And, and the way it shapes our brains and the way it shapes our bodies and our hearts um, has, has caused us a lot of problems. And so a lot of times we, we measure trauma inappropriately. Um, we look at our childhoods and we go, well, Clint, you know, or therapist or whoever, it can't always be childhood trauma. It can't always be those things. And maybe it's not always, but a large majority of it, if we stop and ever ask ourselves, like, was our childhood, was our experience growing up what Jesus intended for it to be? And we measure it that way instead of measuring it like, well, I wasn't beat and I wasn't, you know, I was fed and I had a roof over my head. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Because we've got to get squared that with ourselves to see where our, our behaviors come from in the moment so that we don't uh, perpetrate that against our kids so we can stop the cycle. But our fear, right, in the garden and our fear in life is that we're not loved and we're not safe. I'm going to you know, go back to that. At the core of everything, at the core of all our behaviors, all of our thoughts and feelings, these two kind of values um, are something we got to pay attention to. And so, you know, again, God designed us not to be in fear and not to be in fear of losing our salvation, our worth, our value, our security. But we have this deep, deep desire in us and our sin and our flesh to be God, to, to define that on our own, to, to use external things, to get internal worth and value, to, you know, find success in the way the world tells us and the way that we can get it. And a lot of us do that because we live in this generational cycle of trauma and history and, We've never stopped to think about some of this stuff and kind of peel the layers back. And so a lot of what we do in counseling, a lot of what we try to do on this podcast with asking the why questions is to dive a little deeper, dig a little deeper into what those things are. And so the thing we know is that trauma, right, this, this trauma, if we define it as a mental health issue, a brain issue, a chemistry issue, it affects our mind, body, and soul. And so trauma is also a separation from God, right, or a a way that we listen to the lies of Satan or um, the way that the world and the impacts of sin and the brokenness in the world affect our flesh and our humanity. And so it affects our minds by changing the way we think, changing the way what we believe, right? Our beliefs shape our thoughts and feelings, which shape our actions. It changes our body. Trauma changes our body because it our body is the makeup of those chemicals. It's also the muscles and the fibers and the bones and the and the heart rate and all of the things that the neurochemistry that goes with it. So our mind and body, right? They're the same, but they're different. There's some overlap. And then ultimately our soul, right? It, it affects it affects our spirit. Um, the thing that's in us that is not as measurable as the other things on an MRI, but that we know um, is how things should be, right? That we... We, we have an intrinsic morality that, that's within us that God put in us when he created us to know right from wrong. And all of the mind-body trauma that happens starts to cover that and, and, and to give us a lens to look through or to um, read the world by because we're in protection mode. And, you know, there's all cultures deal with this differently. We live in America, so we have a very Western culture and a Western view of things. And so what we've done is we've kind of separated those things and put them into silos, mind, body, spirit, with psychology, with medicine, with all the things. We separate those things out. And so when you go to the doctor and you've had a miscarriage and you show up at the ER, they don't tell you about 
anxiety. They don't tell you about depression. They don't tell you about these things because that's a psychiatrist's job or a psychologist's job or a counselor's job. And then you go to a, a doctor or a psychiatrist and they don't necessarily counsel you and tell you about, you know, skills and about your emotions and about trauma. And you go to a therapist and they don't always ask you if your blood pressure's high or if your thyroid's messed up, you know. And so we've, we've kind of put ourselves in these very um, separated places in, the, in in professions. And so we're trying to, to bring those together and look at that. And so when we look at Scripture and it says to, you know, that, that these things affect our mind, body, and spirit, we've got to see how they overlap. And I think that's one of the benefits of a lot of Eastern medicine and, and non-Western medicine is they didn't lose that spiritual side. They didn't lose that body side. They they check in with those things. And, and that can obviously get really twisted up, and you can get into spirits and demigods and you know all kinds of different types of worship and confusion but i think the reason it goes in that direction is because there's some truth into into paying attention to our bodies paying attention to our minds paying attention to our souls and seeing them as one whole thing um but we have moved so far out of our bodies that we have made everything to do with emotions a lot of times even in therapy so knowledge-based so so um logical that we can explain it we can talk about neuropathways and we can talk about chemicals and we can talk about trauma and how it's affected you and and all of that helps we do that every day here i see clients that do that all the time but what i want us to pay attention to today is is how that affects our body and how that trauma gets stored in our body there's a great book by vessel vanderkolk that's uh, the body keeps the score and um, it talks about a lot of this and how the body stores up our trauma and i want us to think about how that um that primary trauma from the garden to now and in our own lives, it affects our body. So when I, you know, ask someone, when I ask a client how they feel, you know, and they say they feel sad, I want them to check in on, you know, where does that feel in your body? How do you feel that? Where do you, where do you see that? Where do you feel that coming up? And, and, you know, a lot of times people look at me like I have four heads because they've never stopped to think about where their sadness is. Is it in their gut? Is it in their chest? Is it in their shoulders? And so even if you're listening to this now, like take a second, you know, just take a moment. Don't close your eyes if you're driving or running or something like that. But like, just, uh, just take a moment to be in your body, to look around the room and look where, where you're at, you know, that you're outside, you know, take in, um, the sun, take in the, the room you're in, the desk you're at, the car you're in and be mindful of your body sitting in the chair or what it feels like the road hitting your feet or what the treadmill feels like or or what the steering wheel feels like just take a moment to be mindful and and be in your body fully with God with the Holy Spirit in this moment because so many times we we run through the day and we don't take the time to to be in our moments and in our bodies and so these moments flip by where where we we miss out on opportunities and man, this is a game changer for us to learn. And obviously we can't do that all the time. There's stuff going on. But the more we do it, the more we start to build a, bit, a neuropathway and a habit and a, and a healing method in which we can pay attention. We can start to have insight into what we're feeling. So before we even get mad or before we even get angry or before we even start to lust or, or want to spend something or eat something that we, we shouldn't or whatever it is that we're using to cope that we're dealing with our trauma, we can feel our body start to, to lean in that way, way, you know, like if you're an Enneagram person, you know, I'm a two. And so I can wing eight, which is, you know, I can be out outspoken, um, in my, in my health. So I'll go from being super empathetic and super patient to like, Hey, let's get this done. And, you know, aggressive. 
And so I've had to learn to pay attention to that so I can, I can feel that wave coming on of like, okay, here, here comes the eight wing. It's, it's wanting, you're wanting to get this done because you don't like the in-between, right? We don't like the middle ground of, uh, you know, figuring this out. We want to either be empathetic or we want it to be over with. And so you got to pay attention to where we feel that and where that comes up and our blood pressure. And are we clenching our fists? Are we clenching our teeth? Are we shaky? Everybody has different body sensations and different feelings, but we have to start to be aware of that. And this awareness and the ability to access those feelings, right, are super, super important because we also can be in a state, you know, where we're, we're numb and we don't have any feelings. And that's where a lot of people find themselves. But then we go over to the other side where everything's an overfeel and um, everything is upsetting and we can't tolerate stress at all. And so our brains and our bodies and our ner- nervous system right, are switching from this calm into fight or flight. And, and what I see is many people out there live in a constant state of fight, flight, or freeze. And there's some other ones, but we're just going to focus on those, right? Just get aggressive, shut down, or, ch- you know, run away or check out. And we don't even realize that there is a calm. We think we're calm. And we think what we're doing is, is okay. A lot of times with people with high, high anxiety, I'll have them get on medication or they'll start to take something or do, you know, have to need some medication for something. And, and they'll say, oh, I don't like this. It makes me feel slow. And it's really, they just feel normal. You know, they feel calm. They feel at peace for the first time. And they're not used to not going all the time. And, and that going all the time, right, that hypervigilance is what we call that anxiety has kept them safe their whole life. It's been a tool, a coping mechanism that's helped them survive. And so they like that feeling. Although they're in my office saying, hey, I don't like that I bite my fingernails or I don't like that I'm cutting or I don't like that uh, you know, I'm obsessed about X, Y, and Z or that I'm super irritated because those are also consequences of the of the anxiety, but the anxiety also has benefits, right? It protects us. It keeps us safe. And so we don't know what to do in the calm, right? But we have, we have to realize, right? There is a calm and we, and, and we can't do self-evaluation, right? We have to have outside influence um, or we're not going to know what's true. We're not going to know if we really look calm. And so this is where relationships come in. Relationships are so important trusting relationships, healthy relationships, because people can look at our life and say, Oh, you feel like you were calm or you feel like your tone's great, or you feel like you come off that way. And that's what you see. But man, it looks like this from the outside. And then we get a good evaluation and not in a shaming way and not in a blaming way, but just in a, in a helpful, like, how do I be better? How do I grow? How's this come off to other people? Because the Enneagram's great. And the personality types, Myers-Briggs, all those things are great, but we can't settle for, well, I'm a two, and this is what a two does. And um, as we talked about on our podcast, Jesus was all of the numbers. You know, we want to try to find a way to find balance in all of the numbers. We want to find who we are and how God calls us to be, but we also want to not do it out of a sense of coping. And so all this is running in the background of our trauma. And then we have, you know, the things that have happened over the decades in our culture, whether that's war or just the rapid individualism that we've had, you know, the shift away from community and back in the front yards and and people raising children together. Um, I was talking to somebody this week about, you know, the abortion debate and those conversations, and I'm not going to get into that. But um, ultimately, you know, the foundation of so much of, of these issues is a lack of community, is a lack of the church being the body of Christ together with each other and raising children together. Women feel so isolated and feel so unsupported, and they have babies on their own. And and we 
we argue about whether there should be education, whether it should be prevention, whether should we should do away with it. And, and all of those are great conversations that we could have for hours. But at the core of it, the question is, are we, do we have families that are teaching values, that are teaching healthy sexuality, that are teaching about bodies and safety and these things that are creating human beings that have communities of questions and support so that by the time they're 12, 13, 14, 15 young adults, they're making wise decisions. They have feedback loops that tell them whether it's good or not. And I think that's a main a thing that no one's really talking about and we're not putting in the debate of, you know, again, we're trying to treat the symptom instead of getting to the root causes. And we can throw money at things. We can make laws. We can make legislation. We can do all those kind of things. But if we don't get to the root of so much of this stuff, um, it's going to be a major problem. And so we've seen that shift um, in our community. And so many of us, we have this trauma. We have this background. Um, we, we're not attached to our bodies. We're not looking at our mind, body, and soul as a whole. The, the, the culture around us is not. The culture around us is, is traumatized. And so you have a bunch of individuals who see it this way, who are working this way, who think, oh, I got to do this on my own, and I value that, and, and I have to do it that way, and that's how I get connection, right? Because that's the thing is the, the way to get sober if you're, if you're working with drugs or addiction is, is connection, that's actually the thing. Yes, recovery is important, and yes, the steps are important, and yes, all of those things. We do all those things. But when I have men and women come into a group of other addicts, people who struggle with addiction, and we take off that label of "Hey, you're an addict," you're you know, and we put in "You're a child of God," and you're worthy and you're valuable, and we tell this story and we help people see their story and their trauma and how that you know they didn't just wake up at 32 and start smoking crack they didn't just wake up 32 and start cheating on their wife they didn't just wake up at 32 and start drinking it, it's a it's a coping that fell in with all these other things um for the first time in their life they'll look and they'll say oh my gosh I've never had community like this I've never had people who who share in in their brokenness and who I who I see their story and you know one of our groups we have um you know probably eight nine guys who show up every week and three or four of them share their story of recovery and how they've made it in their marriages and how they've made it in, in their recovery and not perfectly, but they've done the work and the newer guys are so encouraged by that. And, and they can, the, the guys who've been in it can look back and go, okay, yeah, I struggled with this too. I still struggle with this just left less often. And they're honest and they share about the details of it and the graphic details of whatever their drug addiction is or sex addiction is or their alcoholism or whatever the thing is they're struggling with. And man, the shame reduction in that is like, wow, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. And I think that community should look the same in church, right? Should that honesty should look the same in a Bible study because we all have struggles. We all have issues and we all have trauma, but we're so removed from being aware of it and so detached from it because we're just constantly in the state of fight or flight or freeze. We're never in a space that's calm, that's nurturing, that's open to suggestion, that's open open to insight, that we, we, we think we're okay and we're not. And so then we have this huge shift in technology and culture, and, um, and we think we're connected, and we want connection, and we think because we have a bunch of Facebook friends or Instagram followers or that we see people's videos or reels or whatever that we're connected. And in reality, it's just another hit of dopamine that's numbing us out to the real connection that is under all of this. Um, and so a lot of that comes from our lack of a lack of, lack of ability to have ever been truly attached in a healthy way. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. 
right? Attachment theory it looks, it allows us to kind of take a look at um, back at our childhood and learn to see how we got our needs met emotionally, physically, and I would say spiritually, which is kind of a missing component from the from the research and literature is again, just integrating like, what does God say about this? And how does scripture say about this? So there's four attachment styles. There's secure attachment. Um, a person like this can trust pretty fairly easily. They're attuned to their emotions. They can communicate their upsets very, you know, what their upsets them very directly. Um, and this leads to relationships that are cooperative and flexible in their relationships. Now, I read that and I go, okay, I don't really hit those numbers. And if you hear that and go, yeah, I don't have relationships like that. That's because most of us don't have securely attached relationships. We have a really hard time asking for what we need. We have a really hard time communicate what not, you know, communicating what upsets us. Um, we either yell and scream or we withdraw and shut down. Um, and cooperation, right? That flexibility if you look at our culture, man, ooh, nobody has any flexibility in agreeing and disagreeing. It's all or nothing mentalities a lot. And and that's because people are in pain. That's because people are hurting. People are scared. And people are, you know, wanting secure attachment. They're wanting to feel safe. They're wanting to feel love, but they don't have it. And they don't know where to find it. And they don't have any insight into what's happened in their life that's, that's given that to them. And so in the moment, man, everybody's just at war for security and stability and to feel worthy and valuable. The second type is anxious. Um, they have a very sensitive nervous system. They struggle big time to communicate their needs directly, and they tend to act out, relapse, whatever it is, um, when they get triggered. And triggered, again, is a word we'll dive into in a little bit, but you know, triggered is that emotional response that comes out of nowhere that, um, that we don't even know is happening, but something sets us off and reminds us of this past need that wasn't met. Because, again, attachment is all about I have a need as a baby or a little kid. I ask for it. And how our parents meet those needs are what define our attachment style. We'll dive in that second. Third is avoidant dismissive. Uh, they downplay the importance of relationships. These are the people who, you know, I don't need anything. I don't need you to help me. I don't need anybody to take care of me. I don't need a man. I don't need a woman. I don't need this. Um, I don't need to be vulnerable. They're, you know, usually super self-reliant. And a lot of times, right, that, that looks like a good thing. You know, uh, you have teenagers or kids who, you know, I hear all the time like, hey, I was just really self-aligned when I was a kid. My parents said I didn't need anything. And it's like, well, that, that's not great. You know, you should at eight or nine not be self-reliant. If you were self-reliant, most likely it said something about your ability to get your needs met with your parents. And, and again, it's a spectrum. It's not all or nothing. It's not, it's not that if you were a self-reliant kid, that's a, a total bad thing. But we need to pay attention to it's not a total good thing either. You know, we have to pay attention to what were we being dismissive and we have to ask those questions and dig into that. Um, they can tend and now dismissive people can tend to be super vulnerable, right? In a big crisis. So they, they can get there, but it has to be kind of a huge issue. And then lastly is what we call disorganized or avoidant fearful. Um, they're kind of chaotic. They're back and forth. They've had a lot of trauma, a lot of issues, a lot of inconsistency in parenting. So they go back and forth on that stuff. So let's look at some parenting styles and, and see what kind of creates these attachment things. And, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think setting up the back half of what I'm going to talk about, you need to hear it again. Um, so a lot of times parents that are very disapproving, um, you know, they see children's negative emotions as irrational, you know, small, uh, it, they, it shouldn't matter, right? 
um, they see that a lot of times people see the, their kids as manipulative. Oh, they're trying to manipulate me or they're, they're trying to, you know, they're crying. And so that if they cry, they get their way and, and they view emotions all that way. Um, and children hear that as unimportant, right? Um, they see negative emotions, crying, being upset, losing their temper, um, that they see them as coming from weakness or flawed character traits or that they're going to, you know, lead to bad things in the future. And so they're treated with harsh criticism and judgment. And so conforming, right, is, is how you keep the homeostasis, how you keep the, the peace in the house, and it's demanded. And then if it's not done, then it's going to be enforced by hitting, spanking, yelling, punishment, strong consequences. And so the child, right, because their feelings are believed to be wrong or invalid, these type of kids think that they're flawed as people. And they may, you know, they eventually show a lack of emotional control. And so that's one, one style typically. And then dismissing. So children's emotions are viewed as irrational, trivial, devoid of substance, manipulative and bad, and therefore unimportant, same thing. But all, then the child gets, you know, is told to get over it, right? And that they need to um, resolve these problems without their parents' help. And so their parents go, I'm not going to help you resolve these things. You need to get over them. It doesn't matter what you're feeling. I'm going to be over here and I'm going to be detached. And so because these, these kids feel their feelings are wrong and invalid, children, again, think that they're flawed and they continue to kind of show a lack of emotional control. And then you have parents who are kind of laissez-faire, right? They're just, they're just all over the place. So all emotions are okay. Comfort is given, but no guidance, no limits, no, no assistance in helping. So children are allowed to kind of ride out the storm. So you have one parent who is um, shaming and disapproving and hardcore. You have another that says, don't have them at all. And then you have another that says, have as much as you want. You know, you can do whatever you want. You can feel whatever you want. If you need to cry and you need to yell and you need to break stuff, like that's just how you feel. That's where you're at. And I see this swing in our culture um, with parenting, and, it, and it's tough. It's, it's tough to ride the line, right? It's tough to figure out what a kid needs in those moments. And so a lot of us as adults, our parents did a little of all this. And so the, the laissez-faire type of parenting, the real laid-back, low-boundary parenting, it, it t- kids tend to not know how to regulate themselves. And then they, they focus a lot on task-oriented things or making friends, and they use their social status and, and character to, uh, to get their you know, needs met. What we want to do, right, what we want to learn how to do as parents and what we need to do for ourselves is we need to learn to kind of be an emotions coach. We need to help them figure it out, find the balance. We don't need to be emotions are weak and vulnerable, and that's bad, and you shouldn't have them, and that's too much. And we don't need to be over here you know, letting them cry it out for 30 minutes and, and have a, a meltdown, and that's all fine. We need to help them regulate them. You know, we need to meet our, our children's negative emotions with awareness and patience and respect. And we need to view this, right, and take every opportunity that we have to develop some intimacy with our kids. So that might look like your kid throws a fit and they're really upset. And you stop and you get down on their level and you say, I hear you. I hear you don't want to go to school right now. I know that's really hard. I'm going to need you to, you know, I'm going to still need you to get your shoes on and let's go. And then you're going to keep working with that and keep working with that. You're not going to fall into the trap of, well, if I yell at them and get them to 
to lose their mind or shut up or shut down, then I'll get them in the van and that's all that matters. But we're also going to not go, well, you don't have to go to school today because you're crying and you're upset. So let's just all stay home and watch, you know, cartoons. It's such a balance. Um, and so we've got to learn to help them, you know, we listen, help them em- learn to empathize. We need to empathize with them, help them identify their feelings, um, set limits on their behavior, and then assist them with solving the problem. So be there with them, walk with them through that. Um, and we're not mandating specific solutions, but we're coming up with kind of this overall openness to like, okay, well, here's some options that we can do. So try to give our kids, you know, multiple options. We can, you can get your shoes on now, or we can have this consequence, or we can, you can wear these shoes, or you can do this, or you can have five more minutes, and then we're going to get in the van. You know, whatever it is that helps them feel like they're empowered to make that decision for themselves. And so, if we raise kids like that, they are comfortable with their feelings. They're okay with displaying their emotions and they then start to have some emotional control. They're typically good at problem solving and they have, you know, really high self-esteem, high learning aptitude in school and ability to form a lot of friendships. And so most of us did not get this growing up. A lot of us, and, and we're passing it down, have what we call attachment failure, where we, we had a little bit of all of the dismissing and all of those kind of things. And, And so a lot of times we're in constant pain and constant kind of struggle to stay out of fight or flight because we don't, we don't know what it's like to have love and attention and affection consistently. And so what we're, what we're ultimately talking about, right, is if we're looking at this through the lens of scripture, then this is truly just healthy discipleship, right? We, we can use these psychology words and attachment and attunement and dismissive and, and anxious and all this kind of stuff. But these kids that, and ourselves, if we, we think about this through this lens, it's all the same stuff. It's all healthy discipleship. It's all, how do we parent in a way that they're attached to God, right? If we're attached to God properly, and if we see who he is, then we can disciple our children correctly so that they have healthy attachment to God first and then us second. And I tell my oldest and my youngest now, before we go to bed, you know, I love, you know, I love you so much more than moon, the stars, all that stuff. And then I say, you know, who loves you more than me? God. Because I want them to understand that there, there's something that's outside of my love for them that's imperfect. That is what they need to rest in when I'm imperfect, when I fail, when I rupture the relationship, when I damage it. I want them to have something that they're attached to that's above me. But we, um, we have to stop as parents and we have to go back and heal that in ourselves and, and see God properly and adjust our view of him. Because a lot of times because of our own anxieties and insecurities and avoidant attachment styles, that's what we do with God. And if you think about it, like, man, do when you sin, when you screw up, when you fail, when you stumble, how do you feel about God? How is he as a parent to you? Do you feel like you can go to him and get your needs met? Do you feel secure in praying to him and asking for what you need when you have something as, as trivial as uh, a job that you, you need or something small? Like, do you, do you feel bad about asking for that? Do you feel like you don't have a place to ask God for what you need because he's done so much for you? Do you feel like you've done too much sin, too much bad things in your life that you can't ask God for what you need? If so, that's going to play out into our relationships, and that's going to come from the way we were attached to as children um, by our parents. So we, we, have to, um, we have to heal that in order to move forward. So what do we do about that? Well, I think 
part of the problem and, and, and this podcast is kind of answering a bunch of questions that have been sent into me. So I'm just kind of going through the questions and trying to keep it in a, in a concise order. But one of the problems is that, um, our culture, so we, we understand the trauma, we understand the attachment now, and our, but our culture is like getting really messed up about how do we give, as we raise kids and as we were raised, how do we designate that for the different genders, right? So girl or boy. Um, and ultimately, yes, boys and girls are different regardless of how the culture is kind of moving and, and saying. And um, So let me give an example. So toxic masculinity. We live in this world now where we're so polarized that if I say that there is toxic masculinity, then half the group shuts down and goes, oh, my gosh, Clint's, you know, woke, and he, he thinks that being a man's bad and negative. And then the other half's like, absolutely, you know, being a male's bad and negative, and there's so much there's so much patriarchy, and there's all this kind of stuff. Well, look, there's truth on both sides. But we have to define what is toxic masculinity, right? We have to look at what are the things about that, the examples um, that we can pull out, um, because it's not everything, because there's toxic femininity too, right? There's there's toxicity on both sides of the spectrums, and it's usually in the fringes. It's not in the middle. So we, we have to stop looking at things in such polarizing ways, and, and instead of getting in debates and analyzing you know all of the things of today, what I'm asking us to do is to look at what we need as humans, right, as boys and girls, as men and women, and get out of the, oh, you know, categorizing well boys need this and girls need this and we need to learn our children we need to learn ourselves we need to learn our friends and we need to start asking questions and instead of going well he's a husband or he she's a wife and so women are this way and men are this way oh well you know how men are they're just not emotional you know how women are they're over emotional well that's on a spectrum if we actually look at the whole spectrum as clinicians we see that men and women are you know are very different but it's the out outliers, it's the fringes, right, that make things skewed on the scale. And so we have to, those are very important things to take into consideration. But the reality is, is that we all need some of the same things. And so I, I think as a culture, we've gotten into this debate about content and about what do boys need and girls need. And, and instead of looking at our kids as individuals and figuring out what they need. And so, you know, boys are on a, on a spectrum, for example. You have what we call rough and tumble boys who are, you know, it makes up, I think the research shows like 90% of men are rough and tumble. So those are, you know, they like to wrestle, they like to be aggressive, they like to break stuff. Um, and then that spectrum from that 90% moves over to what we call sensitive. And extremely sensitive makes up somewhere between 5% of boys, you know, very, very sensitive. What we've done as a culture is we've said that's feminine. That sensitive boys, boys who like art, boys who like to dance, boys who like plays, boys who like to do music, that that's more of a girl thing. And that's part of the problem is it's a typical girl thing, but it's not a girl thing from a God point of view. It is a human thing. And we have to look at this and shift this differently. But the world, so that's where toxic masculinity comes in is it's like, oh, if you're a boy and you like art or you like to dance, then you're doing a girl thing. And that's very toxic. No, you're doing a you thing. You're doing a kid thing. You like to do music, and let me let me get beside you as a father and a husband and a and a wife, and let me let me nurture that and raise that and and love on that. And same thing with boys, right? I mean, girls, you get tomboy, and they they want to dress like boys and they want to do these things, and and we shame that and and say, oh well, he's like she's like a boy, and it's like no, she's a girl who likes to play in the mud. She likes to get dirty. She likes to wrestle. We you know we have two boys and 
We have tons of girlfriends who can keep up with them and out, out roughhouse them, but they also wear dresses and they also like to do dances and they also like to sing. And you know, I mean, it's a spectrum. And when we start defining these things for these kids and when they were defined for us as children, then they shape our, they shape our narrative, our view of ourselves, our view of how God sees us, our, our attachment style, all this stuff we talked about before. And so we have to stop and we have to go, okay, well, what does this mean? And so obviously boys and girls are different. There's a different spectrum for them, but we have to remember that from a Christian perspective, the fall happened. And so, yes, Adam and Eve had different traits, different needs, different biological abilities, but then the fall happened and things got really jacked up, right? Things, you know, the biological, the skills, the gifts, the abilities, all those things were given to us before the fall differently. And then they got screwed up and things have gotten, you know, consistently more twisted up. And Satan has been able to use this brokenness to kind of pit us against each other and to be in all these arguments and get in all these debates about all these issues. And again, these issues are important. Every one of them, whether it's abortion or LGBTQ or, or transgender, all those issues are super important to have conversations about to figure out what's true. But when we don't do that with people, with human beings, then we reenact their trauma. We reenact their problems. We, we detach from them. We, we damage their attachment. And so all I'm asking you is to stop and, and let's start to think about it from an individual basis. What am I dealing with? What's the person in front of me dealing with and listen to their stories and talk to them. What's my child dealing with? What is he like? What does he want? And not project all of our own trauma, all of our own, all of our own issues on onto them because it's continuing right to cause the generational sin. And what I, I would call emotional poverty that we continue to pass down one generation to another. So I want you to imagine it like a pitcher of water, right? Not a pic, not a picture, but a pitcher. Um, and, it's supposed to be filled a hundred percent, right? It's supposed to be Shalom. It's supposed to be the garden of Eden. We're supposed to get a hundred percent love, safety, security, but sins in the world. And so we can strive to reach for a hundred, but we're probably never going to get there. And so let's think about our great grandfathers, right? And the struggle they had with war and, and poverty and issues. Let's think about our great grandmothers and the, and the things they were going through as women and the struggles they were going through with women's rights. Let's think about racism. Let's think about um, slavery. Let's think about culture. Let's think about America coming from Britain. We can, we, can, we can go back far with consequences of generational sin and poverty. And, and that picture is going to be filled up at different percentages, but it ain't going to be close to 100%. And because that picture, let's go back to our grandfathers, was only filled up 30% with love, maybe... Maybe our great grandfathers, right? They they had no money. They made a dollar or two a day. They were in the Great Depression. They were in poverty, so they weren't worried about emotional intelligence. They weren't they weren't trying to understand their trauma. They were trying to survive, and so they they weren't able to go to therapy. They didn't have trauma therapists. They didn't have counseling. They didn't have churches that understood certain things, and so they weren't able to recover in the ways that we have the privileges of now. So they have our parents, and and their our parents go well. I'm going to do 60%, you know, of the love. I'm going to be able to give my kids 60% of what I have. Um, I'm going to love them. I'm going to be secure, but I'm going to, I'm going to do better than my parents, but there's still a 40% gap, right? There's still things that didn't get met. And so we have to be able to hold those two truths at one time of going, okay, things happened in my life when I was a kid that were traumatic, that violated my attachment, that, that gets me to cope with how I see God, how I see others, how I see myself. And everything that I do in life is about those is about 
working off of those um, those traumas or those failures or those deficits, let's say. But also, my parents, my grandparents are in a system or in a history, and they were doing the best they could with what they had, or because of their trauma, they were doing they were making decisions that were selfish and and harmful because of their trauma and their inability to get out of that. And so we have to, through therapy, kind of find this balance, you know, or through discipleship, find this balance um, of living in, in the in-between, that they're both true. And so let's pretend for a moment that, that we all need the same things, right, to, to fill this picture up. So what needs to be in the picture is the question. What do we need to pass down to our children in order for them to have healthy attachment to us and to God? And if you, you're listening to this and you realize, like, I didn't have any of this, you know, I want you to know you can, that you can reparent yourself, that you can heal, that you can um, be a person that feels loved, that feels secure, but it's not going to be all the time. But man, it'll be way more than it was last year and way more than it was the year before. And so I like to call these things the, the five A's, right? The first thing that we need. So maybe you got all these, maybe you're in the 5% of people who did. And I'm, I'm describing it so you can pass it down to your kids. And maybe you're a person listening and you're going, I didn't get any of this attachment stuff. I'm super screwed up. I, I need to work on this. My coping's all over the place. I need to be in therapy. I need to get some help. I need to meet with the pastor, whatever it is. Then I want you to think about it through the lens of that you still can get these things and you still need them and you still deserve them and God still wants you to have them, okay? And the first, the first A is affection. So all kids, all adults, we all need affection. Now, you have people go, I don't like people to touch me. I don't like people to hug me. I don't. And the question is, why? Can you get to a place, maybe, you don't, maybe you're not a, on a spectrum, a hugger all the time, but can you get to a place um, in your life with the people that you love and the people that you're close to that if they need a hug, you initiate it. If they need touch, if, you, if you're aware of it, that it's not something that you see as negative or worthless or not... <laughs> worth your time, but it's something that you're willing to be, to hold, to be available for, and then enjoy because of the relationship. And so we look at, we can look at Romans, right? To know, to know that God tells us that we need affection. It says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation we'll be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ, Lord, our, our Savior. And so we know we need affection, right? We know we, we need that affection from others, from our kids need it. They need kisses. They need hugs. They need touch. They need cuddles. And that's boys and girls, right? That's men and women. And the idea that, that boys need it less or girls need it less is a moot point. We need to look at ourselves and go, what do I need? What do my kids need? What is, where is my kid on the spectrum of, of affection and how do they need it and how do I give that to them? Two is attention, right? We need it. We need to spend time with them. We need to look at them. We need to play games with them. We need to be by them. We need to get off our phones, right, and be connected with them, not sitting on the couch while they're on the floor, but being on the floor with them, being engaged. And we need that in our own lives. You need attention, and you deserve attention. You deserve someone, a spouse, a friend, to be fully present with you. And ultimately, God wants that. John 15, 5.15 says, And we know that he hears us, whatever we ask. We know that we have what we ask of him. 
Jeremiah 29 says, Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So right there, it's telling us God wants to be with us. He wants to. He wants to us to find him. He's not. He's not playing hide and seek, right? And then Psalm sixty six seventeen through twenty says, "I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God, who has not rejected my prayer or withheld His love from me. So we need affection. We need attention. We need affirmation." Right, kids need to hear who they are through the lens of attachment, through the lens of truth, through the lens of trauma reduction. They need to know that they're worthy, that they're valuable. Right, again, Romans is such a great one. Can anything separate us? Right, does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all things, overwhelming victories are through Christ who loved us. I and mean, that's just wild to listen to. So we need to teach our kids and ourselves that that's the truth of God, that nothing can separate us from his love. And so many of us live in this space of that. Not, I don't think we believe that. I think we think we have to earn it. And we have to keep up and we have to keep repenting. We have to keep doing good or God's going to somehow get tired of us or abandon us. And that, that brings us back to our parents' view of us or our view of our kids or how we're parenting our kids right now, that they have to meet our expectations that we're going to withhold affirmation if they're doing bad, that we're going to withhold our love and our affection and our attention if they're not living up to our standards. Psalm says, But let all who take refuge in, in you rejoice. Let them sing joyful praises forever. Spread your protection over them, that all who love your name may be filled with joy. For you bless the godly, O Lord. You surround them with your shield of love. Right? We know that we're secure not only in love but in protection. And then lastly, authenticity, which is what we're talking about a little bit today. Romans says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. First Corinthians says, and I, when I come to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that's why it's so important to take all the psychology and all the education and all the knowledge and whittle it down to God loves you and you're secure in his care. And the rest of it's important. It's not to say throwing it out, right? Paul's not like, don't, don't do the rest of it. But he's saying at the end, all that stuff, all the science, all the research, all the arguments, all the debates, all the arguing in culture, all of the trying to win, you lose who you are in Christ in that. So to review, right? Affection, affirmation, attention, authenticity, and healthy attachment. Those are the five if you were taking notes. Um, so this again, this is why it's so important to, to learn about ourselves as individuals. Because we have to know and understand how to meet our own needs and what we believe to be true before we can go giving it to other people. And I'm, I've been the king of this, if I'm honest. You know, being somebody who wants to help people and them to feel loved and them to feel valued and people to feel supported. Um, but man, as a, as a two on the Enneagram, as a helper, um, I don't always do that authentically. Or I definitely haven't. I think I do it more now. But what I mean by inauthentically and, and – with a bat from a bad attachment standpoint is like 
if I don't help you, then, then you're not going to love me and this whole thing falls apart. And if I'm not a hundred percent there and available, then you're not going to be there for me. And it, it's all this family trauma, all this history. And so we have to learn when you say no, because you can't show up for something or when you set a boundary that that's not mean or that's not bad, that's actually valuing yourself because you're aware of who you are and what you need and what's best. And, and the question is how can we serve and live authentically if we haven't processed or dealt with our pain and our suffering from our past. So we must kind of know our deficits in order to recover and change and in order to serve other people, in order to be present, in order to live an authentic life without anxiety, without fear, without doubt, without pain, without suffering all the time, without avoiding. And many of us, right, if we're not in relationship with people, then we can stay in this state of isolation and and. We can stay escaping. We can be our number on the Enneagram and that's fine. And, you know, I'm a five, you know, somebody's a five. And so they're like, well, I don't come to the party or somebody's a seven. And they're like, well, I'll just always stay positive And I just always do this. Well, if we never have relationships that are healthy and that, that calmly and kindly and lovingly talk with us through it, and we're not seeking advice and counsel, then we just see that as who we are. But underneath that, a lot of times it's just coping. So if you're listening to this and, you want to know kind of why is therapy work? Why is it helpful? And a lot of you who listen, go and you understand what I'm saying. Um, right. This is why we go back into our past. This is why we go back into our childhoods. That's why it's so important. I mean, so many people come in and, and say they had a great childhood and after six or seven sessions, right. It turns out the childhood was not so great because no one has ever really defined what a great childhood is and, and what a childhood's supposed to give people. We don't, we don't know about this stuff. And so we, therefore we don't, we don't see its negative impacts on our friends and our peers and our culture and ourselves. The other problem is we don't make space to figure it out. I actually just sent this to our staff this morning, just saying like, listen, I know it's only 50 minutes you get with people. It's, you know, an hour we get to spend with people in therapy, but it might be the only hour that week that anybody's asked them how they're doing or, and giving them the space to actually talk about it and process it and share it and, and, and figure out what's true and what's not true. And we deserve that as people. And God wants us to have that space. He wants us to 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 be with him. And we, we can't be with him and be doing a bunch of work all at the same time. I mean, Jesus was baptized and started his ministry. And the first thing he did was go to the desert for 40 days. But so many of us don't want to take the time to take care of ourselves um, because we don't believe we deserve it. And this, again, comes back to trauma and comes back to attachment. Many of us just blindly living our lives without ever asking ourselves why we do what we do and what's the purpose of it. You know, you get into therapy, you got to start asking those questions. You get into discipleship and relationship, deep relationship, healthy community, and, and you can't just do behaviors without knowing what, what where they come from. People are going to call you on it. They're going to, because they love you and they want to know you and they want to see why do you do this? Why do you act this way? Why do you, you know, good or bad? And so, so many of us avoid deep relationships because that's so scary because we don't want to look at ourselves we don't look through the light we don't do the work and so we have a culture that's avoiding all of that and that's where we're seeing this extreme sensitivity so again we have these swings we have um a whole history of never taking mental health and emotional health into consideration and we have the big swing the other way where now everything's a trigger and everything's traumatic and everything is is um is hate speech and everything is everything instead of taking moments and situations and going, well, is this thing that right? And instead of, 
we generalize, we blow it up, we and we do it publicly on social media, we do it in the news. We've got to get back to just in our individual hearts and minds and selves asking those questions and the relationships that we have influence over, that we have relationships with. Right. So if we have somebody in our life who's doing a behavior that we think is sinful or wrong, we have to first ask questions and, and connect and get to know those people and, and, and concern, be really concerned about what, what's going on and why that is, not just to prove that it's wrong, but to actually know the person. And so we don't do that. And so we have this culture that's extremely, takes everything extremely personal, right? Everything becomes a battle of our security and our worth. If someone disagrees with us or says something unkind, it, it knocks us off our, our feet. And our children are growing in a culture that that's ever more increasingly so, that they can't, they can't resolve conflict. They're taught that any conflict is bad, that any suffering is bad, that any struggle is bad, and that everything should be super comfortable. And again, I, I, I think that points to like this lesson on fear and pain and attachment and, and what's safe and is God safe and, and all these things. And um, because we're not recovering, we're passing down very bad lessons and we're just kind of taking the pendulum and swinging it left and right. But if we can learn about ourselves and know that then we can you know learn about those around us. If we understand our own poor coping, then we can learn others. If we begin to see the world as you know in a different light, then we, we can see others as broken and struggling humans that are longing for connection, longing for um, peace, longing for their own security, and we can be that for them. I think when we, um, one of the major problems, I think, in, in, in getting our needs met, in asking for what we need, in um, learning to, to heal from our attachment, right, is is this idea of, it's selfish, right? I hear this all the time, like, again, polarizing, but self, self-care self is a big word that's going around. It's a, a nice buzzword that we, we use all the time, and, and self-care is important, right? But sometimes somebody can be so hardcore on self-care that they they shuck their responsibilities and don't show up to work and don't show up to the team and don't show up for something else because they're taking care of themselves. And then on the other hand, people can say, well, no, you show up 100% of the time. You care for the family. You care for the team. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter you know, if you're struggling. You need to be here and not let us down. And it's like, well, where, how do we find the balance? How do we find the balance between taking care of ourselves, getting our needs met, and meeting, meeting other people's needs? And I think sometimes that, that falls on the church because we don't teach it properly. We don't teach it in a healthy way. We can tend to think that as Christians, if um, if we ask for what we need or we say we don't like something or we stand up for ourselves and set a boundary, that that's selfish. Right? That's a selfish thing and that that's sinful. And Jesus wasn't selfish. You know, uh, I have this, what would Jesus do? And it says he would love first. Well, love first, what does that mean? Does, does love first mean he would only, you know, get crucified at every time? That he would only take abuse at every time. That he was that he would let everybody think and feel whatever they want to think and feel at every time. No, because he was about truth. Now, did he abuse people and ram the truth down their throat and demand that they change and demand that they do things and shame them for not? No, because he was about grace. And so, when we look at selfishness and selflessness, there's a, a middle ground of selfhood that I think Jesus had. That I think 
to heal from heal and live an authentic way, we have to be able to learn to do this. And, and I am learning it with you. So trust me, it's not, um, even though I'm speaking this, it's something I'm constantly every single day trying to work on better. But I don't think Jesus in the technical sense was selfless. And what I mean by that is I think Jesus knew exactly who he was and who God says he was, that he was valued, that he was secure, that he was loved, that he was seen and known. And all those affirmations, all those five A's that we talked about, he had all of those so securely and so well that he could confidently live out his life and know what his needs were and ask for them and then set boundaries and, and demand to be taken care of in the ways that he needed to for the glory of God and for his, his and others best. So selflessness would say, my wants and needs don't matter. It would say that we bury our, our talents and we bury our hurts and that those things don't matter. It would say, I never get to state my needs and I always defer to everybody else and what they need over me, even if they're being abusive. And I work really hard for God and others and do not know how to receive anything from God or others. So I'll serve God, and I'll be there for him, but I'm not going to spend any time listening to him, or I'll, and I'll serve others, but I'm not letting anybody help me. That's what selflessness is. Selfishness is my wants and needs always come first. I pursue what I want no matter who gets hurt. I'm going to do me. You do you. I always advocate for my needs, and I never defer to others. So I'm always like, listen... I know that um, this work thing works this way, or I know, but I'm not responsible for you, and I'm going to do my thing, and you know, I don't like this, and so I need to step back, and, and today's this, and this is hard, so uh, you know, I'm not going to do something hard because I don't deserve that because my needs come first. And then in my relationship with God and others, it's like I only think of what's in it for me. What's God do for me? He's going to provide. He's going to give. If I say these prayers, if I do these things, if I'm a good person, he's going to shower me with blessings. I don't think Jesus fell on either one of those categories, and I don't think we're called to either. I think we're called to the middle ground of selfhood, which is knowing who we are and whose we are in God. Knowing first that we're loved, that we're secure, that we're valued, that we're worthy, that we're known, that we're seen. Knowing that God is with us, he's walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death, that he is making us lay down by green pastures, that he is a personal, loving friend, and also he is a mighty, holy Savior. And so when we know those things, then we can state our needs that help us have healthy relationships because a healthy relationship is a, is a reciprocating relationship that takes in your needs and my needs, and we, we work that out. We develop our God-given talents, right? It's not that they only matter and our gifts only matter, and it's not that they don't matter at all. It's that we we go, who am I in, in the body of Christ? Am I a toe? Am I an arm? Am I an eye? Am I a mouth? Am I a head? Am I, what am I? And how do I develop those for the community and for myself? And it's my responsibility to do that. It's my responsibility to develop myself as best I can for the glory of God and for my community. It's not anybody else's responsibility. It's mine. And it's important that I do it. I consider my needs and the needs of the other one, of my loved ones, equally. So I think, okay, what's you know, what what do I need in this moment? What do they need in this moment? And how do we work that out together? And with God, I can give and receive from God and others, right? I can I can serve him, I can love him, I can do his works, but I can also take in his blessings and be thankful for them and, and believe that I deserve them. And so when we 
can't do that when we find ourselves constantly fighting the tension of everything. Every time we ask for what we need or we have a need that needs to be met, we feel selfish. Right? Or every time we give, you know, and give and give and give, we get burnt out. If every time anybody tries to hurt us, right, it's this very polarized, all or nothing way of living. But if we can heal, if we can, if we can heal in good relationships with God, with, with trusted others, with community, then we can start to find this balance. We start, you know, we start to be able to be in relationships and be okay with asking for what we need and get those needs met. And it becomes this dance. You start to realize that everybody is not out to get me and I'm not responsible for how everybody feels. But at the same time, I can be concerned about how everybody else feels and I can be a supportive role and a loving role with truth and grace without overextending myself into being God. But I also don't have to remove myself so, so much from everybody because I'm afraid of getting hurt that I can't hold anybody's pain. I can't hold anybody's differences and everything's a personal attack or an offense, or I have to, you know, set a boundary every single time anybody does anything wrong. I'm going to say my piece and I'm going to be heard, right? It's finding that balance. And so the, the true balance, right? For me and to find authenticity and live this authentic life that we're talking about is to figure out our trauma, what's happened, heal our attachment styles and our coping and start to to do that with both God and other people, right? To see that that these past histories, these past traumas, these past damaged relationships, they affect our view of God, and they affect our view of ourselves. And so, this leads to humility, and this leads to a stance of, I am a sinner. I am broken. I do struggle. I do struggle with with anger. I do struggle with lust. I do struggle with money. I do struggle with body dysmorphia. I do struggle with anxiety and fear and doubt. That's who I am. I, I struggle with those things. I know where it comes from. I'm, I, I use those things in a negative way to cope with my pain. And I can be honest about that with the people I love and the people around me. And they can know where that comes from. And they can know my story. And they can have empathy and grace. And those things don't start to define us. Opposed to the opposite of humility, which is, I don't have any problems. I, don't, I got it all together. This is everybody else's problem but mine. I, I don't struggle. I'm not going to, you know. I got this. Or the flip is, I'm so terrible. I'm so bad. Nothing God could do. I define how God forgives me. I define what needs to happen for me to be free. I define because I'm God and I'm still telling God how bad I am and how how I'm going to allow him to not heal me and save me. And so when we find that balance, then we can start living authentically. We can say, I can boast of my weaknesses. I can be honest about my sin. I can share with others and, and pray for others. And I can confess my sins to others and I'm going to trust God in that. And I'm going to have people in my life that I trust with that. And I'm going to heal how I get my needs met so that when I go out and serve, when I go out and lead, when I go out and parent, I'm doing it from an authentic place. I know in my heart and in my mind, Oh man, I'm giving, I'm loving my kid. Right. I'm loving my husband. Right. I'm not doing it to get, I'm not doing it to overcompensate. I'm not doing it. And then becoming resentful or frustrated or burnout. I'm doing it in a way that, that is authentic to where I can do this long-term. I can ask for what I need, and I believe that I deserve it. Not because I'm amazing, not because I'm the most perfect thing, but because God says that I am, because God loves me, because God wants me to have a rich and abundant life. And so we have to learn how to do that as, as individuals, as Christians. So I hope that today some of this stuff can can give you insight into how you can be more authentic, 
I want to, uh, one last thing just off the cuff while I'm thinking about it. All that's great. But scripture says that the battle is not against flesh and blood. Right? That it's against principalities. It's against evil in the heavenly realms. And so there is spiritual warfare that's going on. There is, there is um, an evil that's around us. And again, we can't get polarized. We can't blame Satan for everything, although he is in the world and he is trying to kill, steal, and destroy. We have to look at our own sin and, and figure out which one it is. But I want us to remember that there, there's kind of two scriptures that I think about when, I, when we get into this space of, okay, well, Clint, how do I do this in the moment? Okay, well, here's how to do it in the moment, how to live an authentic self, how to recover, how to heal our brains, how to live in the truth. We have to hold our thoughts captive, as Scripture says, which means we have to know what we're thinking and feeling when when problems arise. So conflict happens. We start to we, we learn to be in our body more. We learn to to go. Okay, when I when I start to feel ashamed, when I start to feel dirty, when I start to feel this alone, left out, missed, you know, abandoned, whatever it is, my body's going to start to respond this way. That's where Satan attacks, right? That's where the spiritual warfare comes in, and and Paul says it's not against flesh and blood, so. It's not against it's not against ourselves. It's not against our neurochemicals. It's not against the triggers that other people cause us. It's not against our coworkers or our spouses or our children or or you know Democrats and Republicans. That's all flesh and blood fights. It's against, it's against what's going on in our heads, in our minds, in our bodies, in the in the belief system, in the thought life that says you're not worthy, you're not valuable, you're not secure, you're not loved because of these external things. That's where the battle is. That's where the evil realm is attacking you today and tomorrow until the end of time is that you're not worthy because of these things. You're not loved because of these things. You, you're you in risk of losing love, losing security because you don't have money, because you don't have time, because you don't have this job, because your kid's mad at you, because your coworker said this thing or doesn't believe what you said, because you've gained some weight, because you have a disability, because whatever whatever the thing is. That external thing, it, Satan is going to use it and attack it, and that battle is is in your in your with the spiritual idea of do I believe in what God says? Do I believe in who He says I am? And if we don't stop and capture what are the lies that are coming in our head, what are what are the narratives that have been written in our brains and our bodies and our souls over the years? If we don't identify those, then we're dead in the water. We have got to do the work of understanding what are the specifics in which we're broken because those are the specifics that Satan is trying to use against us. And so we've got to go into the Word and we've got to dig in and, and richly dive into this stuff that we're talking about and we continue to talk about and get to the whys of I behave this way because I think and feel this way because I believe this about God. And in the moment we have to go, do I believe this about God? So if you're right now, if you're driving, you're shaming yourself about some behavior, stop and think, what do I want? Well, I want to, I want you would say probably if you're a Christian, like I want to, I want to give God glory. I want to be obedient to him. Like that's why you feel shame, right? Is because you're not doing that. Whatever sin you have, you feel bad about because it's separated. You feel like it's separated from God and God's disappointed. He's mad. Well, that means you want God to be happy with you. You want to please God. Well, the way to, to do that is to believe his truth. Not to do works, not to get better, not to get healthy, not to do self-care, not to heal your attachment, your trauma. All that's important. But God loved you and sees you worthy and valuable already in spite of that. 
And if we can believe that in the moment, then all of that other stuff is going to work out after it. But when our worth and value and our security is relying on all these other things, our parents, our history, our ability, our success and the way the world measures it, then every time Satan is coming in and going, yep, and, and he's not lying, he's telling half-truths. And so we've got to be mindful about that as we move forward. And we've got to build, right, this, this weaponry, this warfare, these weapons of warfare that are not just fleshly tools that are spiritual in, in, in a sense. And so I want us to, to think about that richly and deeply because so many times we forget to add that spiritual aspect in it and we forget to add, you know, we forget to make that make sense. And I hope I'm making sense because I'm just rambling at this point. But um, I, I want us to realize that, that that's what we, we go back to. When, when Scripture says the dog returns to its vomit, right, like we return, the fool returns to its folly, I think I don't think it's I don't think it's a behavior that that God's focusing on. I don't think it I don't think that scripture's saying, "Oh, you return to alcohol every time you fool." I think it's saying deeper before you went to the alcohol, what did you lie to yourself about? The 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 vomit that we go back to is that God doesn't love us and we're not securing his care. The alcohol is just a symptom of that. But we're taught to to focus on the behavior and and focus on doing that change and God will love us and the reality is, is that he already does. And so if we can remain in that truth, then the rest of the stuff can make sense and we can heal. So I pray today for you, man, that you just uh, you feel loved, you feel valued. And if you don't feel loved and valued or that you're trying to get worth and value from other things that you know it's not working, that you know that you spend your days getting worth and value from your career, or getting worth and value from your looks, or getting worth and value from whatever, that it's just a constant fight that never, ever, ever makes you feel content and at peace. And God wants you to feel at peace today and content in that he loves you and he sees you for who you are. And he knows you the most, knows you the most intimately, knows all of your sins, all of your struggles, and yet he loves you the best. Right? So he can see all the way down to your marrow and know your sin and your brokenness, and yet he loves you more than any other person. And so I hope that you can feel that today. Hope you guys have a good week. If you need something, shoot an email to us. Um, if you have a podcast you'd like us to do in the future, um, you know, shoot me some emails. People have been sending me stuff. So, I'm, you know, like I said, a lot of this has come out as questions I've gotten from emails and just trying to summarize some of those for people today um, and kind of dig into, you know, some of the roots of some of this. I could do, you know, a podcast on each part of these this talk, you know, and dive into it more. But, um, yeah, send it to us. We'll, we'll do it. Go like, and subscribe. Um, leave us a review on, um, iTunes Download it If you're not downloading it, um, you know, it only measures what's downloaded. So sometimes people just listen to it. So if you download it, we can actually track how much, uh, people are listening. Make sure you share it. Make sure you're getting this information out to people so they can, uh, get healthy and feel loved. Thanks and God bless. <laughs>